Okay. Hi, all the people listening to this or watching this. I'm Lisa Selen Davis. I'm here with Eliza Mondegreen, Ben Appel, and Jamie Reed. And we're gonna talk about the year in gender. What a what a crazy year. I believe this year was 2023. So I <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to start just by having each of us say sort of when we when we heard about the kind of kids gender affirming care issue and when we peaked and i i have a feeling for me it'll be the scariest longest time but i i really first heard about it i think in maybe 2011 10 or 11 when um i had a friend who was working on a book about trans teens and needed an agent and i actually hooked her up with my agent so i i think one reason it took me so long to peak is that I very much accepted that idea. And she had a trans foster daughter who I had met. And um, I think that what's interesting is I, I think that I started to really get concerned around 2015, which is um, when a friend of mine made this documentary that Jamie might talk about called Growing Up Trans. And I watched it and thought, I really think all these kids are gay. Something seems off. But then it took me um, like six, five to six more years to understand the research enough to know why I felt that way. So Eliza, let's let's go to you. Okay. Um, so first of all, hi everybody. And uh, I first got interested around 2013 because I was working, well, I was volunteering in the women's reproductive health space and was noticing yeah this new set of taboos on women's speech and that was how it kind of struck me from the beginning but I also just didn't look into it and um it wasn't until 2015 when it was becoming more of an issue in my personal life and also more of an issue at work because I worked in the public health sector and I took the advice to educate myself very seriously and went to some of the places where people that I knew and loved had educated themselves and come out as trans. So that took me online. And what I found there was really eye-opening. Um, yeah, so I would say I probably fell down the rabbit hole in 2015, but it took several years before I started writing. Were you in graduate school then? No. Okay. I was working. You're working. But now I want to just ask what spurred the writing? Like what, from 2015 yeah. of like, oh, this is something is sort of wrong with this narrative. What pushed you? Um, I started writing when I realized that I could have a pen name and then I wouldn't lose my job and I wouldn't alienate some people who I loved very much who I disagreed with about this. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, that was smart. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Ben, to you. Let's see. Well, I was thinking um, the it was 2017. I was uh, I had gone back to school and I was at Columbia and I had landed an internship at GLAAD um, in New York and I was working there. And, you know, it was the first year, first number of months of Trump's presidency. So it was a really intense time. <clears throat> and I was like part of the hashtag resistance. I was all about it. Um, and 
at that time, a lot of state legislatures were putting through uh, bathroom bills to, uh, you know, ban trans kids from um, going into the um, bathroom that they desired or that aligned with their gender identities, um, especially like in Southern states, I think like in maybe Texas, especially. <clears throat> and so I was the news and rapid response intern for GLAD. So I was doing a lot of their research. So they were having me, you know, just like research all these bills and everything. And I was, I mean, I was geared up. Like I said, I was in it. Um, I was reading articles about, you know, how trans kids were getting urinary tract infections because they were holding their bladders all day because they didn't want to go to the bathroom, et cetera. Um, and so it was like my first kind of like real, it's weird. It's like my first kind of real introduction that there was, there was like a trans kid, you know, like that there, it was just this common link, like, oh yes, trans kids, protect trans kids. And it was kind of, and I just didn't really, I didn't really allow myself to think about it so deeply, but what I did wonder was briefly, well, what was, what's so different about like the trans kid and like the kid that I was, because I was, you know, really gender nonconforming and bullied and my coping mechanism, my survival tactic at the time was just to defeminize myself, you know, so I became a chameleon, um, you know, and that was, that was my solution really to, to do that. I kind of became, you know, this really cis normative, you know, kind of person, um, in that, in that lingo to use that lingo. So that was where it kind of started. And then meanwhile, I'm seeing this evolute, this revolution of gender, or, I'm in the middle of it at Columbia and at GLAD. And I was, it was a culture shock. You know, I was always this really liberal progressive person and I didn't, you know, so I'm seeing all these people identify as queer and it was then I'm learning about non-binary and then trans and people are saying, oh, you don't have to have gender dysphoria to be trans. Oh, you don't have to take medicine to be trans. Oh, you can just, you know, and, and I'm like watching this unfold and I'm kind of confused and also really afraid because there's also the onus on everyone to use the correct pronouns and really be not say anything problematic, but it was also like, oh my gosh, what is problematic? Because it seems like I don't know what this, what's happening. Like, what is right? Tell me what right is and I'll just abide by it. Um, and then meanwhile, I'm starting to kind of like disagree a little bit with the approach. Like, well, that seems kind of regressive or that seems kind of like stereotypical or wait, you're a gay man, but you're clearly a woman. And, you know, so what I don't, <clears throat> so like you're a woman with a boyfriend, but you're calling yourself a gay man. Like, I don't understand. Um, so that was really jarring. And then, but it wasn't until around, I think, honestly, I think it was around 2018 that I learned that about, honestly, like puberty blockers and that there were, you know, kids that, that the Dutch protocol, essentially, I mean, what, that was what I came to understand what it was. And it just all just exploded from there. And meanwhile, I'm at Columbia for three and a half years. So I'm studying LGBT history and queer theory and post-colonial theory. And I'm taking courses called Muslim masculinities and contemporary Islamic civilization and U.S. lesbian and gay history. And so I'm immersed in what's being taught in the classrooms through this theoretical lens 
and then seeing and it's the first Trump, it's the Trump administration. I mean, it was just such a chaotic and weird time. And I'm having this kind of real identity crisis. But when I started getting into it and I started just having these heretical thoughts like, wait, this doesn't really make sense here. And wait, I think some of these kids are probably just gay and, you know, and then just being shut down um, entirely. And so finally, when I left academia, because I went to a, I graduated from Columbia, went to a, a MFA writing program for a semester. I left after a semester because it was just horrible. It was just like, you know, awful. And I wrote a problematic piece called The New Homophobia in Higher Education, and it shut down the program. Like the workshops were canceled. DEI was involved and there was an investigation. <laughs> so I decided to leave. Um, I was like, I got to get out of here. And then after I left, it was like, oh, my God, I'm free. I'm not in academia anymore. I can actually think what I what I think. I can say what I think. Wow like out of academia, I can actually do this. Mm -hmm. So that was when I started tiptoeing into it and writing and I wrote a piece for Quillette and then I wrote a Newsweek op but I just it kind of went from there and I just met people and just became, became was in this. Okay, great. And I met you because I wrote you like a fan letter after the Quillette piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how we met, yep. Yeah. Um, okay, Jamie. So I... Uh, appeared from the planet Republican Mars, where I did not exist until February. No, um, <laughs> a lot of people think that. Um, <laughs> February 9th, uh, not even a year ago, um, published a piece in the Free Press. I had been working with the Attorney General's office for a few weeks before the piece went public. So I had... Um, already gained legal representation and and had um, officially filed a formal complaint with my Missouri State Attorney General. But I think I knew something was wrong probably by 2019, 2020. And I Wait, didn't first, leave first until... Say how you, first say how you got into... Oh. Because you started. So I was working in I was working in HIV care, and in HIV there's a lot of overlap with um, trans care because for a long time some of the highest rates of HIV were found in the trans women women population. Um, so we saw a lot of patients who were trans and also HIV positive. Um, and Lisa is correct. I watched a PBS special. Um, I loved PBS, and I. I watched the special live as it aired and it was about trans kids and it was treating, it was treating trans kids and it was in our old house. And I remember distinctly, I called my husband in the room who, who had medically transitioned as an adult. And I was like, Oh my God, you got to see this. Come here, come watch this with me. And he came in and he was in there for maybe 10 minutes. And he said, ah, something's not, I don't, I don't feel like something's really right with this. I don't think I can watch this. And he left the room and I was just captured by this entire concept. And I think there were so many elements of my own childhood feeling gender dysphoric myself and growing up, you know, as a, a lesbian, but a very kind of masculine tomboy kid and knowing these trans adults and, you know, in HIV care. And I just thought it was the most amazing new scientific endeavor. 
and I was totally captured. And so basically from seeing that, I um, was really interested and plugged into working with that population. And I always worked with pediatrics and really enjoyed that age group. And so as soon as a position came up within WashU, um, not only did I apply, but I had a number of people at WashU directly reach out to me and say, you need to apply for this job. Um, you would be perfect for this position. Okay. Yeah. So now we turn to the feeling that something is not as you expected it was going to be. Yeah. I feel like I've talked about it a lot. I do know um, maybe, maybe people would say, you know, I was, I was looking for information probably from 2019 on. I, I ordered Abigail Schreier's book. I remember reading that. Um, I remember distinctly the 60 minutes piece with the detransitioners. Um, Laura Edwards Leeper and Dr. Um, Erica Anderson's piece was hugely impactful. It, it rippled through the center that I worked at. I didn't even find that piece first. It was sent out to the whole team by the child psychiatrist. And she said, you know, you have to read this. And she even had written in her email, you know, this really resonates with a lot of other things I'm hearing from child psychiatrists who are working in this field. Mm. And that piece sparked huge um, debate within the team and the center. Um, so I, I know that conflicts were really percolating and, and, and in the conversation within the center from probably 2020, at least. Mm. Okay. And you're talking about the, the Laura Edwards Lieber and, and Erica Anderson wrote the, you know, the industry's failing trans kids. I think right. that was what, mm -hmm. and it was for Washington post, right? Yep. Yeah. And that was, yeah. what year was that? Was that, I thought that was 2021. That was end of, end of 2021. Okay. <clears throat> and it I like the story of how they, they sent it to the Times and then the Times, when they turned it down, sent them a list of names, other places to send it, which is, I, I've, that's interesting. I, to me, that's an admission that they knew it was wrong, that they were passing mm. it. And, and I certainly, some of these things are like, you know, I, I think I expected that to be the pivotal moment. I kept waiting for these you know, just, I was ready to go in as soon as there was an opening and each time something would happen, I would think, well, there's the opening. And by now I think there's, and especially this year, it's so much stuff happened that, and, and maybe the opening is coming or maybe I'm delusional, but it's- it, Or, or the metaphor of cracks. Uh-huh. Aren't these kind of cracks in the facade and there's just more and more cracks swarming and they're getting bigger and bigger and then eventually it will all collapse and also this was all going on so kind of to me it feels like just like clandestinely like it was just it, we didn't know what was going on for years and years so yeah there was like this you know the, there's cracks in the facade but people or not even realize that there was a facade there to begin with. Yeah. Yes. That's so it's it's happening simultaneously in a lot of ways. Mm. <clears throat> to me, in my opinion. Yeah. Ben, I think something interesting you mentioned, and I've heard a lot of people talk about this, is 
the kind of the puberty blockers as a moment of kind of realization and horror. And I know for me, it was that I just I feel like that's the one that comes up the most when it's like a person is talking about like, okay, maybe I was trying to like, <laughs> descend and figure this out. And that's when I really lost my footing. I was like, Oh, my God, how are they doing? this? Like, how are they blocking? Like, this normal stage of human development. And I think I keep expecting every time there's a piece in Reuters or New York Times or something that comes out that like if it talks about that like that will move people and that will make the difference and then you know we'll reach the turning point and it seems it, it seems to still be it's hard to tell where it is. I'll have to say you did nail it in that the puberty blockers was the huge leap that the Dutch undertook because even in some of their writings they were already doing this slow wiggling down into the the later teens with the cross-sex hormones so they'll yeah yeah, they were even saying well what's 16 what's wait what's 17 what's what's the line with the 18 and they were kind of wiggling that down the huge really fundamental leap that they took were were the blockers Mm -hmm. yeah and you read them and they say well we don't really know like you know it's an experiment and we don't really know what's going to happen and they yeah and they did it and they never particularly bothered to find out yeah I, i mean actually i think that's one of the things that happened this year was there was more attention paid to the research, to the Dutch Dutch research and the kind of exposure of, you know, when people say, oh, there are these, there's this great evidence and there are these great studies and it, and they really worked. And then, and then with further scrutiny, a, there was the, we won't go into details, but the switching of the scale. So what they measured, they didn't really measure the impact of the medicine. It was all, kind of a meta um, sort of would you feel better if this you know would you feel better if people saw you as a girl it didn't ha- it didn't have anything to do with what they'd actually gone through and and also when you read the very early papers from from 19 I've read 1998 and 2006 now much more closely than I had and and the full admission of like we we don't really you know this is we're just guessing and we're thinking maybe this will be good. And we're pretty sure it affects fertility. I mean, everything, and there's a huge high rate of desistance. So you've got to be incredibly careful about who you do this with. It's very rare. I even have this, yeah. I mean, and even Norman Spack, when he opens the clinic in 2007, it, all of it is on the table. All of this yeah. stuff that's now been erased. Yeah was completely out there in the beginning and it got erased not because you know they figured out it was all fine and but i think because there'd been such an incredible investment you know emotional psychological financial investment in this gender affirming model and in the idea of gender identity that you couldn't question it anymore or maybe that's just our culture 
you're saying that there, it was kind of a race like the evidence like the re the actual research the evidence that showed that they were kind of just performing these experiments that there wasn't really backed up by data is that what you were saying yeah that the that that the stuff anything negative anything unknown right they were <laughs> honest about at the beginning in the beginning it's not like we really know much more 30 years later right everyone is like life-saving evidence-based etc yeah right and so i think that i think the one of the things that happened this year was a kind of exposure of the flaws of those studies and that we still don't know and and i yeah. think yeah and i think oh go ahead liza were you gonna oh i was just gonna say i think one of the things that we might have seen this year is the end of plausible compromises between transition for some kids and transition for no kids because I at least a couple of years ago I saw a lot of people advocating for caution and you know we should do it the way the Dutch do that's the gold standard and like you said if that's been taken apart how can you justify doing it to any kids and I also think like it is really interesting to go back and read the old Dutch studies and even the early American clinics and they're talking you know they're proposing and doing this crazy thing but it's just to a few kids and so they're pretty honest about it. And you can see, I think some processes going on at the same time, like as they do it to more and more kids, they can look at it less and less in terms of their own responsibility because they just, they have to be self-justifying the longer that they do it and the more kids that they do it to. And as the kind of trickle of kids turned into a torrent, there was less time to think. Like we find out from, you know, Hannah Barnes's book about the Tavistock and the political pressure comes on because this very weird kind of niche area of like sexology and psychiatry starts getting attention. And then of course we can't have nuance anymore or can't be honest about all of the unknowns. Like I think a lot of those things happened and that's why things that were out in the open, you know, 23 years ago receded. Yeah, I agree. I think it was so niche and there also wasn't really much in the way of internet infrastructure. It wasn't as easy to get even get your hands on these studies. And and there were just, a, you know, there were news articles when it started here in 2007, officially started. I mean, it was unofficially before that, but mm -hmm. I. It's kind of interesting. Oh, go there ahead. Were glowing, there were glowing news articles here in St. Louis when the Gender Center here opened in 2017. The press, you know, lapped it up. They came and they took photographs of the first day of the center opening. And it and isn't that kind of because you know people talk about you know uh, what what is really behind it. You know, there's people who say like, oh, it's the money and it's profit and it's oh, it's these folks and that folks, but. Lior Sapir, he, you know, often says, like, really, it's just a confluence of a lot of yes. different things. Um, and, and I agree. Um, ultimately, I think that it's like, almost like a kind of soothing to just have to be able to pin it on one thing, you know, it kind of, to simplify it that much, but it really is just, a, uh, there aren't necessarily just these specific evil actors, I don't think. Um, but I think it had a lot to do too with, or something that I think about, especially after talking to like Dr. Laura Edwards Leeper and, and, and like thinking more about that time when in 2007, when SPAC opened the first clinic, 
is like, you know, you just have this, what's the term where people just trust the experts? You know, they just defer. Oh, to it's them. the chain of trust. The chain of trust. So, you know, who were like, Jamie, you said in 2017, these, you know, journalists were covering it glowingly. But what basis did they have to say, oh, this isn't right? You know, like there's a, yeah. there's a multi-million yeah. or billion, I don't know, but multi-million dollar funded endeavor to open something that has, you know, hospital on it or, or clinic or health for vulnerable kids on, I mean, who is, who would I be to say, oh, this is, this is, yeah. this is bad news. You know, then, it's, it's, it is that chain of, or what did you call it, Eliza? It's the chain of trust. Chain of trust I think yeah. that there's also just like kind of the audacity of doing things like blocking puberty is almost protective for the people who do it because it's just almost impossible to imagine that anyone would do it without extremely good evidence. And that's hard to overcome when it's like, no, really, like they don't know what they're doing. Like for real, like that's very hard to get across to people who want to yeah. believe that it was there. Did my phone just ring on the on the thing? It's very okay. quiet. A little. Okay. Oh, wait, right in the middle of Zoom. I'm on a Zoom, honey, can you call daddy? <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> you didn't preemptively yell at all of them to tell them? Um, no, I forgot to say, but they oh. wouldn't have read the text anyway. You know, it's on do not disturb except for the kids. Anyway. I yeah. know. Um oh the kids. Oh the kids. Yes. Well, that's an interesting thing also comparing 2007 to 2017 and maybe something that did change this year but it is that if you look at the articles about the clinic opening again they're they're honest they're like mm, the we're, we're you know we don't know seems like it's causes infertility how do you talk to kids about it you know there's it's a new thing mm -hmm. and so and also journalism was different and so they report of like oh this is you know controversial this is difficult um, and, you know, this year we saw, you know, the Emily Bazelon, was that this year or was that the year before? Emily Bazelon was last year. Okay. Emily was last year. So we saw what, what did oh, we running together. that was, that was different. Something the, was the Reuters, different. were the Reuters pieces last year too. The Reuters, the Reuters were, pieces were last year. I think the puberty blockers yes. piece was this year. This year. Yeah. I think so too. Okay. Yeah. And then there, was, there, was a, was, yeah. there was a some shift at the New York Times, which triggered mm -hmm. Glad to reassert its right to, to censor. I was hoping <laughs> that was going to be a bigger moment than it was when people would say, like, wow, these activist organizations really have a lot of control over the media and you know, kind of over all of these different institutions. I wouldn't, I wouldn't underestimate. I think that's still ongoing, Lisa. I think that's a, I think that's a moment that's exploding. I don't think that that's reached its end. In fact, I mean, one Times writer who, when that occurred, you know, texted me and said, wow, glad used to be respected. Like this is, this is something that people are aware of. And I think that that's just beginning. I think the facade is, is going to crumble um, there pretty quickly. I don't know quickly. I just don't think that it's reached. It's, I think that that's still ongoing. I mean, I I'm think, hoping. but in terms of the cracks in the facade, which I guess is our theme, it's, it seemed like the times moved, but the problem is that, that the movement 
is so, I mean, they're at such a deficit in terms of their ability to cover this and to understand it as being not just a left-right issue. Cause I, that, that interfered with everything. Jamie looks. I, I still see that though. Yeah, I, still I still see, see the press. I still see the press going to that. This is a left-right issue. Um, I, I don't know how to combat that narrative. And then I also find myself frustrated by it because I don't want to be talking about my stupid democratic credentials. I want to be talking about this actual issue. I don't want to feel like I'm proving that I'm, I, I don't, I don't want that to continue to be the narrative, but it is, and it's not going away. I think Ben's right. I don't know that that is going away. And yeah, the, thing like that's, the... the thing that's scary about the next year is we're going into a presidential election. Yeah. So we need, well, unfortunately we have to talk about, about it in the context of politics because the whole thing got politicized, which is, one reason it's continued as as long as it has and gotten so out of hand because of this deeply polarized time and you know the demand for loyalty and that's why we're all a bunch of heretics who are here together and i think when when jamie came on the scene in february it was, um, as I said before, it might've been a big deal for you, Jamie, but for me, it was, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was sort of like, oh, look, you know, m my people kind of like, I, I had found myself, I, I've enjoyed the kind of like heterodox world and being introduced to, to different pe you know, people outside my liberal mind frame because the liberal mind fr frame wasn't um, skeptical enough to handle this. But at the same time, I also like, it was important to me to feel like actually I'm, I am, I still hold these principles and I still am like accepting of gender nonconformity and I still am kind of, you know, pro-choice or whatever, whatever the credentials are. And Again, I thought, and I think I, I think I have to keep myself kind of stupidly believing this stuff, but I thought, oh, this person has arrived, you know, who's married to a trans man who worked at a gender clinic, you know, covered in tattoos and, um, and is telling the truth and look, it's not a left, right issue. And of course I, it's so stupid that I didn't realize that they would spend all this time trying to prove not not even like sometimes trying to disprove your claims but a lot of time trying to disprove your uh liberal bona fides yeah you know my hope the night before that piece went out was that maybe a couple thousand people would read it and i had no idea the you know, I had listened to some podcasts. I knew of Gender Wider Lens. I knew of Transparency, Transparency podcast. Um, you know, I knew that there was some kind of gender 
conversation going on on the other side. I had no idea what what was happening on Twitter or in other social kind of media spaces. I was really hoping for, you know, at least some people would read it. And um, I've never said this publicly before, but the last thing that the nurse who was my dear friend said to me the night before that piece came out was just get this place shut down. Mm. We were just aiming, you know, the aim was get this center closed. And that was really the extent of my hope with the piece and that I would still be uh, gainfully employed and could feed my children and pay my car note. Yeah. 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 And 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 the clinic did shut down, which was a big. I don't think it's the first clinic to shut down. I feel like there was one in Texas that got shut down, but it got shut down because of I don't know, the governor or a ban or something, but um but this was the first clinic to shut down. Where it shut it, itself down. It shut itself down because of the statute of limitations and Yeah. Very uh, telling. And that was a shock. That was a shock to me. I thought that they they had a grandfather clause in the bill. I thought that they were going to continue. According to them, they were performing life-saving care that was um, supported by every single medical institution, blah, 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 and was uh, the correct science. So why in the hell would they shut down with a statute of limitations change? So, a statute so of limitation what... change shouldn't be an earthquake. So what you're, yeah. And just to clarify, like what you're saying is for people that might not know is that there was afterwards, I think that wasn't there an investigation launched by a state senator right into the clinic after your piece came out. But then anyway, legislation came forward that said, oh, we're, you know, the statute of limitations, meaning like people who were treated by the center years ago or however many years ago, like there's no limit in, in terms of like 15. What, so it's 15 years. I believe it's okay. 15 years after the age of 21. So they, mm -hmm. so you can sue. They opened up the window of suit much, much, much wider. For people who longer. were treated at the clinic, right? Right. For people mm -hmm. who were treated with this kind of care. And again, if you are treating the, the right kids who you claim are going to be saved by this and benefit why for the rest they of ever their lives. And be harmed? Then why would there be any litigious issue later and even if there was a litigious issue why would you you would think well we can back it up you know perhaps right. there is you know but but you know hopefully there won't be but if there is we we know that we're practicing life-saving care and we're we're helping the majority of people here it's and, it's yeah. it's unreal I just saw an article I didn't I haven't read it yet about um malpractice insurance going up and and that yeah it was in the times oh no, it was in time um, it was in time it was in time correct um, time magazine and you know people often ask like how is how is this going to end right because the insurance companies strong armed into covering all this i mean that's a big part of how it expanded was that 
Obamacare created a marketplace for it by forcing insurance companies to cover it. And um, Hmm. so this is one way that it can end without just Republican strong arming, which isn't, isn't, I don't think is the best way for it to end because then now, what do you guys think? Okay. But anyway, I'll take any, I'll take any route. At this point. Yeah. Yeah. I I was with you, Lisa. Like I I'm still kind of torn. Um, but I was totally in that like this isn't the way it should happen because but then I'm like, you know what? It's so politicized. No one's there's no they're never gonna budge and and no there's no way that this is going to like they're they're never gonna be pleased. Like there's never gonna be uh you know, some kind of all of a sudden everybody in the center is like the majority and it represented in media and conversation and discourse. Like this is, it is left versus right. And so, yeah, I'm kind of starting to think like, I don't even care. And what does that even mean anymore? We're so far through the looking glass that what is right and left and liberal and conservative, you know, it's just, it's all just a mess these days. Well, um, let, let me, let me ask you guys something then, because I, there's a lot of, you know, who's responsible for this? And they'll say feminists opened the door in in the seventies when they said women should be allowed access to men. And then, you know, the gay movement laid the groundwork and we're all looking for someone, uh, you know, on the blue side to blame. And, um, and, and I'm not sure generally about like the slippery slope argument. And I'm not sure if, and, I'm, and I, I definitely don't think second wave feminism should be compared to anything that's going on now because we're talking about like very serious kind of limits placed on women in, in, in the law. And, and um, but nonetheless, those slippery slope arguments are, are out there. And so what about the slippery slope argument on the other side that okay, we overlap on gender care, gender medicine for young people with conservatives, but what if that's a slippery slope that leads to no gay marriage to some of those laws had stuff about gender nonconformity. If a child is gender nonconforming, you need to notify the parents, right? I mean, what are we seeding if we allow it to go this route, because uh, there were lots and lots of laws passed this year. I mean, we always hear about the like 400 anti-trans bill, which should not be a word that is used in the media. Anti-LGBTQ. And yeah, LGBTQ to SIA plus, 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 plus. But, but also the, the blue state, the crazy blue state laws, you know, that you can run away and get access, which never get any, they never get, any coverage. So I just, um, I do worry about the slippery slope on the other side. So you're saying that in some of those bills, it's not just about ending, you know, puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for minors. It was also about like, well, we know that there's bills about like notifying parents and stuff. You can't socially transition kids without notifying parents, but you also have to notify parents of gender nonconformity. 
Yes, like in the in the first draft of the North Carolina bill, it said that. And also the bills in both blue and red states have been tied to abortion in some cases. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And have been tied by both sides to abortion. Yeah, by both. Exactly. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So that in, in a blue state, you can't object to gender affirming care without objecting to abortion. And in a red <laughs> state, same thing. Ooh. So I do think, though, if we're if we're looking at 2023, I think we're close to the end of state bills, state laws. <laughs> I'll say this state laws being passed regarding childhood medicalization, because I don't think there's many other states that are going to pass what you kind of referred to as like a red state law. I don't think we have any more. We're at 23. We are right now trying to figure out what's happening in Ohio. I spent the morning on a couple Republican radio call-in shows talking to Cleveland and a couple places in Ohio. Um, very nice, very nice um, hosts to, to chat with. But I don't think we have very many more states that are going to tip. Maybe more blue states will tip, but I don't think there's more red. So what I think we're going to unfortunately see is they think this is going to come down to the Supreme Court and it's going to come down to the presidential. So depending on who is elected president, we might see a federal, you know, federal laws be proposed pretty quickly. Do I think that some of those laws could follow that same slippery slope? Absolutely. Which is why part of the dialogue I try to have every single day is this middle ground where we need to protect marriage equality. We need to protect gay, lesbian, and adult trans people's right to have kids and be parents and participate in society and still also protect trans adults' right to access medical care. I will put a asterisk on it that I do think we need better standards of care and the the haphazard informed consent model is terrible, but I think we need to really work our asses off to make sure that that middle holds, that that middle ground is upheld. So let's talk. So I guess I'm curious about um, next year then, like with the election. So like hypothetically, Like, let's say with Ohio, let's say, Jamie, like you said, like, there's probably not going to be any more. um, We're at 23 right now. What do you think will happen? Like, okay, so like, if if, let's say if Biden runs, he ends up running and he wins (laughs) versus, you know, let's say Trump runs and wins or, or, or like, what do you, what do you hypothetically see as like the divert? What do you guys see as the divergent? Um things happening like what do you try to predict i mean is that if biden wins we're probably going to create an abortion like set so uh, uh, if you imagine it like a chess game it's a chess game that will never end that will perpetually be stuck with Um, Most of the pawns will be off the board, but we will never get to a clear, decisive. 
there will never be a checkmate. And then if, you never, if a Republican candidate wins, do you think that there will be like an executive order or do you think that like there would be, you know, uh, can there be an executive order about that? I'm assuming there can, right? So from the federal level, there's so this is the thing that I find so interesting at the federal level. There's so many things that we could see in Congress or through the Senate. So we could see. We could actually just see some bills around collecting data, so some transparency, some requirements that if you're going to put a child on a puberty blocker within the United States, that they are in a data set and we have longitudinal outcomes. I mean, those things can be done at a federal level, and they have been with other kinds of medical care. Um, I think if the Supreme... When this goes to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court's decision is going to be basically, do states have the right to ban this care? My prediction is they will say yes, that states have the right to ban this care, and then we'll end up with a map of 23, 24, maybe 25 states banning this care and 25 states upholding the care. So then what good science could do is start looking at outcomes in states that have no access to medicalization versus access to medicalization. Okay. It's hard though, because if these are, are children and, and parents who believe that they need this or their child will kill themselves, right? And and it's not available in your area. As and and no one is, you know, when you talk to detransitioners, they they all say like no nobody counseled them on, oh, there are other ways, you know, wait a while. For a lot of people, it goes away or they learn to be comfortable or it turns out this is a symptom of something else. Try an antidepressant, get, get some exercise. I mean, there are, which is, which is, I mean, not to be reductive, just, just, to, just to say you would have to change the way people practice medicine around the issue in, in order to compare because you're dealing with people who've come to believe that they need something that they're being denied and which is going to cause an, just an enormous amount of anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's like, we have to change the, what kids are learning about gender in school and what the way doctors are talking about it. We have to dismantle this suicide myth. I, I, I worry that this environment just gets in the way of all that. I mean, it is possible that we have this, the, the kind of patchwork quilt of, you know, where it's available or not, and that eventually, you know, they, there is enough evidence and, and enough like kind of, the, you know, the insurance model way of like, of, of, oh, we can't, you know, we can't be involved in this. We can't transition people who might then want to, uh, you know, it's too expensive. I mean, they won't cover any detransition care, but there are these other kind of bureaucratic ways out that would lessen the pressure on these individual kids because they, they, the kids are driving, you know, the demand in a lot of ways and they're we have to get rid of the ideas, not just the care. We have to get rid of the what's leading to the demand. Yes. 
but I'm going to be slightly optimistic. So even if we have a situation where we have 23 states who have laws that you can no longer medically transition in and 20, whatever the other math is, 50 minus 23, um, where you can, what I see in a lot of these families, especially with the social contagion kids, is the minimum amount of roadblocks or barriers to care that you can put in you will see desistance and you will see children not going on treatment. So barriers to care is like this social worky term we use in medicine all the time. What are barriers to care? You don't have to make a law to out to make enough barriers, roadblocks to care that the least amount of people are going to access it. So if you have barriers where your insurance requires you can't just miscode it and then your insurance company is going to cover it where you actually have to have documentation in the chart. If the guideline says you have to be identifying as trans for two plus years, well, then if the insurance company demands that the provider actually documents, you have to prove to us two years ago, this child told a medical professional that they're trans, you could institute these little barriers. Um, and you will see enough kids start to um, come away from this because part of the thing about social contagions is that they are driven by attention and they are driven in part by um, the ease at which you can receive the attention and the care for it. And so if we just start to tweak those barriers, yes, I know People will say, Jamie sounds like this mean, evil person. But if it does take you 12 months to get an appointment in a pediatric gender center because the wait lists are so long, there are going to be some segment of the social contagion kids 12 months later who are no longer going to be identified. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And since the main hurry turned out to be about passing... Right. I mean, that is the, the the main thrust of what, you know, the reason the Dutch wanted to do it to kids is because the adults were so suicidal, especially the trans women who couldn't pass. So, you know, if that's the only issue. If we if we understood that that was the main issue, then that would put a little. No. Yeah. Although, I mean, I would say the way that medical providers and the public understand what's at stake with transition has really changed since then. Like, even if the initial justification was these cosmetic outcomes and the theory that a better cosmetic outcome would predict a better adult outcome overall. Like at this point, the medical providers and the patients and the parents, like they really have all imbibed of this, like the suicide myth where any kind of treatment, no matter how substandard, no matter how much we wouldn't do it to, as Jamie has pointed out, other groups um, that we kind of treat these patients like throwaway patients, it's better than suicide. I think that is the thing that needs to be, um, like that's the idea that needs to be challenged. And also just like we were talking about earlier with the greater scrutiny on the Dutch protocol, like the idea that there is a right way to do it. Which is a myth. Just, yeah. Which is a myth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a that there's a right way to do it. 
that there's a right group of kids to do it too and that they will kill themselves if you don't like that is the three-legged stool that this thing is resting on it's such a, it's such a big leap from you know when they looked at the long-term outcomes in the netherlands and we're like oof wow these people aren't doing so well let's yeah let's uh, let's and they report always feeling this way so let's try to do it younger and see if they do better and then they didn't really have long term you know they pronounced it a success after a year or two but the they were comparing it to people over you know many many years so i it just seems like such a huge leap to take but it didn't work well for adults so let's do it to kids yeah and they just couldn't discard that theory that you change the body to suit the mind is it would it be stupid to talk about just the well how much i disagree with the entire theory behind that about you know trying to engineer some kind mm -hmm. of pseudo opposite sex puberty in yeah. humans to make them you know kind of really close facsimiles of the opposite sex um to make them fit it better into society and pass better i mean while uh compromising their fertility and their sexual function and possibly their their brain development and their bone development it, just the theory behind it i mean i'm not on board with that and i never was so yeah i get it that we have to show it's like the long game is okay the evidence isn't there to support this but i'll say it bluntly and out loud every single time i think that that is fucking insane yeah. i thought that was insane from the second i heard it when i said wait a minute so how long are these kids supposed to be on blockers okay so they just stop developing for let's say three years four years and then what they just commence through puberty at 16 if they decide they're not trans and they're years behind their their peers and it, will it commence normally and or i mean it was just there were so many endless questions that it was like and and what about i i'm not even an md and i can understand it like doesn't kind of identity consolidation really kind of occur during puberty isn't there a lot of change that you know occurs that's really organic and biological that we probably shouldn't tamper with i mean i'm not even a vegan you know what i i'm not even a i i eat processed foods i you know and like i'm like but that doesn't seem really kosher to me so what the fuck are we doing sorry excuse my french but like that's insane that's insane it's insane yeah. and i think it's crazy and i think that it's just a bizarre, bogus thing that came out of the Netherlands that a couple people latched onto. Norman Spack talks about, I think he says this, you know, he just all these beautiful kids that they were engineering. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people were salivating over the solution um, and bringing it in. And, you know, he does this TED talk of like, oh, we joke. And now Jackie says, oh, if you would have let me grow two inches taller, I really could have been a supermodel. I mean, th that's insane. Um, 
It's insane to take your gender non-conforming son to get him castrated at 16 in Thailand because you can't do it legally in your country. Um, yeah. I That's not a left-wing view. That's not a right-wing view. That's just a humane view. And... Doc, so I've worked in medicine for years, though. Medicine tampers with the body all the time. I mean, every single day we sedate people and we open up their bodies and we tamper and change and we cut things. And we, I mean, we, we, we manipulate the body constantly in medicine. Okay. And so for doctors, I think that the leap, it d never felt insane. Okay. Because it, on some level, endocrinologists tamper with hormones all the time anyway. Mm -hmm. And so for the doctors to do, oh, I can tweak hormone and I can do this here and I can do this here with hormone mm -hmm. to them. It's just normative. What the, what the thing that that's, that doesn't make sense is that we took it from a field who was used to seeing lab values. So we would check all these labs and we would find an error, there's a problem with the hormones in the body that we're then correcting with the hormones. And so for them, that was the jump was I'm taking a healthy body and then I'm manipulating it with hormones. That was the only leap that they had to overcome was that. And I did always feel like something was a little weird because the endocrinologist sometimes would come out of patients' rooms and then they would come back into the, you know, all the doctors and all the medical people. We all sit back in the pod and they'd come in and they'd say things like, wow, I made the most perfect looking breasts on that patient. Mm. And they would talk as if they were, you know, forming a Barbie, like, and I added a little touch of this progesterone at this point, And they're like perfectly conically shaped, but they're not too volcanic. And like, like would talk about like how they manipulated the body in that way. Yeah. And, and to be, you know, a doctor, to be a surgeon, you do have to be able and willing to cut into a sedate human being and, and change the body. And so, <laughs> For the lay person, the leap was huge. For a lot of doctors, the leap was smaller. It was just, this is a healthy person and I'm doing X2. They were comfortable doing it. Very comfortable when you knew it was an underlying medical reason why. That's really but, uh, helpful. And a plastic I mean, surgeon does that. That's all, you know, they do that all the time. And they do that to, they change healthy bodies all the time. And they change healthy bodies to make people feel better yes. emotionally. And, and, you know, so one of the criticisms is like, this is discrimination because you'll give, you know, a young person a boob job or a nose job, et cetera. And then we would all say, maybe you shouldn't do That's that. That's not great either. <laughs> yeah. and insurance, and insurance doesn't pay for it and nobody says it's life-saving, but yeah, you know, if I had those breasts you just described, I, I think I would, would feel a lot happier instead of well, these. That's a, yeah, so, go ahead. Sorry. you know, I just, I, I think. I, I think that um, maybe it wouldn't be as big a deal if it was not covered by insurance, if there weren't all these lies around it. Well, it wouldn't be medicine. We would acknowledge that it wasn't medicine. 
And the thing that I want to add to what Jamie said before we like completely lose it is like, yes, they were used to doing these kinds of things to people who were sick. Then they redefined this group of patients to say that it was a disease state to not be, you know, if you were a male, but you felt like you should be a woman and then you didn't have a female level of estrogen. Mm. Like they created the idea of a disease state that they treated. Mm. Still crazy, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, there has been a concerted effort in, you know, every sector of liberal society to create a patient group and 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 to start by in, in preschool with maybe your, you know, if you don't play with the right kinds of kids or toys, maybe there's something wrong with your body. And that bumps that bumps me out. Um, and that does, I don't think that's getting any better because we're just trading who bans what. But I do think the fact that there there's more awareness about everything you guys have raised and and the kind of this idea of the disease state and the creation of the patient. I I mean, I do I think there's more awareness. I can't really I can't really tell because I live in this. I live in a bubble. So I just, I continue to, I am motivated by trying to inform people around me. And I think what I've been feeling in the past few weeks is that it's encroached on me like more than I ever thought that I feel like I was able to build this kind of bulwark of information and heretic friends and the heterodox group. And it's always been kind of over there. And, and, and now I, I actually feel like, you know, it's, it's right up next to me and I, and it's just as powerful. Like it's, it's in my very immediate world now. And I, it is it is really 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 hard to push back on it when it's your face is oh, yeah. and i guess that's what that's on, on the one hand it's been this incredible year where so much stuff has been exposed so many more people have joined us in telling the truth and and on the other hand, sometimes it just feels like the force of it is still so strong. Are, those of you who have been in this much longer than I, has this been a, a turning point year, a hopeful year? The same? It feels better than last year. Yeah. And part of that was, I think, you know, there were multiple get togethers this year. We didn't all make it to all of them, but like, that was really nice. Um, It's also just seeing, I don't know, the conversation has become, whether it's turned or not, it has become more open. And I think that that's always a good sign. So it definitely feels better to me, but I also, I totally know what Lisa's talking about where it's like when it comes into your life and your circle of loved ones, it's just an impossible find, even if you are absolutely clear in your own head about, okay, this is the right thing to do, this is the wrong thing to do because 
that message is never gonna get through in time to somebody who's really sold on this. And there's not a way to say it that it's gonna sound the way that you mean it, which is to be loving. Because you're saying, I don't know, you're saying the solution that to whatever kind of problem that you were having isn't gonna work. Nobody really wants to hear that. I mean, I, th I think this year is different because there are more people paying attention to it. And I think more reporters are aware that it's a, there's a real story here and it, it's not a simple mm -hmm. story. And, and I think we've reached a kind of tipping point in terms of, um, you know, if a lot of this was pushed by parents of, of trans kids initially, now I think there are parents of trans kids pushing back, a lot of them very vocal or desisted kids or who have already lost their kids. So, you know, I started having someone do the Friday roundup for me because I could no longer keep track because mm. <laughs> there were you know, laws passed. There were in, in California and New Jersey, there were school districts that, you know, said required parental notification of, you know, of social transition. I mean, it just seemed like there was a lot happening this year. There more happened this year than any other year, so much so that I couldn't even catalog it. And that that's good it's shaking out it's being aired out it's it just feels really hard to know where it's gonna land yeah it got unstuck but not sure where it's going yeah yeah i think it i feel like i'm always the optimist i think it's okay <laughs> that we don't necessarily know where it's gonna land because part of the process itself that I see is that the process could reinvigorate our cultural dialogue in areas that have nothing to do with gender. So the things that I hope that this is shaking out is these ideas about cancel culture and you can be like canceled because you voiced an opinion that is mm -hmm. different from, you know, those concepts around how we operate as a nation. I hope that just the process of this starts really um, dismantling some of those things, going back to the ideas of actual free speech and, and, and free speech and where its line is and is its line that you're advocating for violence or, you know, like discussing and debating those, debating those things. And then also, I think something fundamentally was hurt when Trump was elected in that we could no longer, you know, wave over the fence to our neighbor who you knew voted for the other party and go up to the neighbor and, you know, have a nice chit chat and maybe share some cookies at Christmas. Instead, Trump was elected and now they become the enemy and everything becomes you can't talk to people in different groups. And the thing that I am seeing because of this topic of gender is that we are relearning how to have conversations with people we do not agree with. 
And I don't know how many times I've said, Hey, Hey, it's clear. We're not going to agree on this one, but I had a really nice conversation with you. Thanks for talking to me today. I had Mm -hmm. somebody, um, on Twitter just this morning, send me uh, a DM and it said, I'm going to, I'm going to make your life a living hell. And I'm going to put your name up on what was it? Expect your inbox to be flooded with the worst crap imaginable. I'm going to link your profile to every hostile place on earth. And my response was, well, I really hope you wouldn't do that. Can we have a conversation? (laughs) Now I could have just immediately blocked them and been done, but instead, Hey, let's, and we actually ended up having a, you know, a good 20 minute discussion. And we came to the point where, Hey, we actually agree on a whole bunch of shit. Like, we just maybe don't agree on this one point. So maybe you don't have to dox me and like yeah. get my inbox filled with hate. We could just actually talk and say, hey, we don't agree. Yeah. So that's What's my it? hopeful Christmas wish. Let's do like a quick lightning round before we go. Speaking of wishes of of your your, you know, highlight of the year for gender stuff or like what's the most important thing that happened and um and your wishes for next year who's ready i i'll say i'm eliza mentioned it i i think the two the gen spec conference in ireland was very life-changing for me and going around with eliza at the u.s oh yeah I was very bad, very, very bad at you were very bad at being undercover. I can't do it. This is why I couldn't have a pen name either, because I was I can't hide. But yeah. I think um, you know, getting all these I think one of the reasons England is so far ahead of us is that it's a small country and all these people could get together. And that is yeah. a lot harder here. And it, it's ironic that the place I first got together with a lot of people I only knew on the internet was Ireland, but I did come back from that with, you know, I, I had been doing this dance for a long time of like still trying to talk in this way so that liberals would listen to me. And I just said, fuck it until it was very, I, I think, I think you can't do this if you don't have some kind, some kind of community support behind you. And so I think, so many people sort of coming out of the woodwork. Um, I think I think that's a big deal this year. So I think that was that was very affirming for me, if I may use that word. Yeah. I think yeah, my, I think for me too. Go ahead. Do you want to go? I I think my highlights were probably um Finland. Mm-hmm. I had a lot yeah. of um jet lag a little bit, but, um, there was something about being in community with individuals from across the world Mm. and having real solid discussions, even the discussions with the Dutch clinicians were still powerful and, and so, so meaningful. And the SAGAM conference was amazing. I think you're absolutely right. There is something about being in community with people in person. Um, just it, it changes things. 
And I think for 2024, um, I would like to see more and more individuals being willing to be public. So I still think that's part of our, our political divide here. Um, and I really hope, I hope we see this at the Supreme Court in 2024. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, I'm with Jamie and Lisa that Ireland and Finland and New York City, it was just really amazing to see people and when Jamie was talking about kind of relearning how to talk to people who you really disagree with. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot and how basically through this, my, like I have by far the most varied along every single access friend group that I've ever had, just of people who I, I have really enjoyed getting to know. And they just from all over the world and every age group and people I disagree with about literally everything else and we can still talk and that's something that if you had told me that in you know 2016 for example I I don't think I would have believed it seven years later um so that's that's a hopeful thing the way that Jamie says that it is and I think for next year um the part that I I didn't mean to I just I didn't think about it when Lisa said you know what pushed me to start writing about it and I was like well the, the pen name that let me get over, you know, the two barriers that I had. The other thing that happened was in 2017, I realized that other people also thought that something was going wrong. And when I first thought something was going wrong, I thought I was going crazy. Mm. And I think as there is more sunlight and as there is more debate, even when it's maybe not the conversation that we would have chosen, even if it's maybe more politicized, more and more people are going to realize they're not alone in their feelings that something has gone wrong and they're going to be braver. Yeah, that's, that was your, that, that was how it was for me too. Like thinking, realizing you're not crazy. You yeah. know, and Lisa, you talked about at the beginning, like how you reached out to me after I wrote my bullet piece. That was huge for me. It was like such a, to, to be, to get emails like that. And to connect with people that were in this and that were smart and thoughtful and kind and compassionate. And um, that was huge. So, yeah, this year, Jen's conference in November in Colorado was a big thing for me because I got to meet so many people that I connected with finally in person. And 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 it was galvanizing and really helpful. Um you know, I'm finishing my book this month, literally. So it's going to be published next year. So, you know, I just will be going through final edits. But for me, I think too, what's going on with universities and all the attention that's being drawn to what a shit show they are, because that's what my book is about is my time at Columbia, going <laughs> back to school in my 30s, you know, at and and being in the center of all this. It's really shining a light on, on the what is essentially a process that began in the late 60s and it's kind of continued to today which is this takeover of this really radical uh critical theory left-wing ideology that's anti-capitalist anti-western and 
it's exploded into what we're seeing now and it's just extended beyond the campus gates and it's everywhere in all of our institutions and it's it's really shoddy it's pseudo intellectual it's you know uh it's incoherent it's um you know it's all of those things and so that's what i'm writing about and that's what um I'm, you know, getting to. The other thing is, is that I think for me, like I wrote this, that piece of the new homophobia for Newsweek, like in 2022. And that was a big deal. That was April 2022. For me, that was a big deal because it was like, what, like when that published, I was like, the night before that went out, I was like, okay, here we go. Like, this is, I'm going to be officially like, this is it. And it was because JK Rowling tweeted it and everything. And so it got traction, which was great. But this year I wrote a piece for Spiked Homophobia and Drag, they called it. But it was like more in depth about like my personal experience and it was a little bit longer. And I was able to mention kind of parallels with like what goes on with Iran. And I was just able to get into a little bit more and I felt like it really went even further um, than that piece. And there was a lot of people that interviewed me as a result of that. What I'm glad about and what I'm hopeful about because is that people are really going to, this is such an old issue for all of us now. Hey, gays are being harmed. Lesbians are being harmed. But people are just like, don't care. You know, I mean, they just have not cared for a very long time. And, you know, including a lot of these gay and lesbian rights organizations that supposedly are there to advocate for gay and lesbian people. So this next year is going to be the year in terms of, for me personally, that I'm going to be able to get it off my chest because Mm -hmm. with this book, Mm-hmm. And with what I plan to do right after the new year and getting more out, it's like, this is going to be the year that I can just be like, okay, I don't know what else to say. This is what I've done. This is what's going on. Anybody, anybody, anybody. So that's what my, <laughs> hope, my hope is. What are you doing right after the new year? Well, I, I'm placing, I'm trying to place a couple um, things in the, in so well, I just don't know where yet, but um, okay. but especially with 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 interviews from detransition gay men, you know, okay. I will say, and I don't even know if the, I should even t- you know say this is really like you know talking about the times, you know, I know a writer there, you know, there was something moving there, possibly getting something in about you know, wow, this look at this wealth of 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 information in these interviews that you have from these detransition gay men these stories oh my gosh and the the quotes and putting together this pitch that was like hey some people might benefit from this this medicine but gay and lesbian identities are valid too and they're people being harmed here and clinicians need to understand that they might be dealing with gay and lesbian people who are struggling with their gender identity, dysphoria, internalized homophobia, et cetera. Oh, thank you for contacting. We'll, we'll pass on this from a gay man who has he, him in his, but you know, it's like, okay. What, what, why, you know, like, you know, maybe I'm a nobody, maybe it's because, you know, you want, but what else do you need besides, let's say, five or six, six, seven testimonies, you know, from men around the world who 
have experienced irrevocable harm. Yeah. And why is because they have a new policy that every editor has to sign off. So mm. if they have, so there seems to be, I don't know how many people, I, I keep thinking it's just one, one person objects every time. And, and that's why you have, you know, one staff person who okay. has the burden of, of expressing all these opinions, because if there is even one editor now, that's the new policy. Uh, so I guess, you know, I would, there's so much I'd like to see in this new year, but I'd really like to see journalists like uh, man up, whatever Just that is. <laughs> whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd like to see, um, I have always thought that this issue, you could have been ended a decade ago. It's reported straight, just report it straight. Yes. You actually do. You don't, you don't have to, you know, yes. sensationalize anything. It's just like, you just report on the detransitioners and then you report on the, the, the data and the reliable, you just tell the story and it, that will allow enough people to become outraged. I wonder if people have gotten so used to the their media telling them what to what to think and how to feel that they don't know how to do that anymore. That might be part of the fallout from what's happened in our polarized society. But I I think that um, you know journalists are competitive, and so if some of them should be sniffing out, you know, that that there's a chance for some prizes if you do this. And it isn't that hard because the rest of us have laid it all out there for mm -hmm. you. And um, I just think straight reporting is all you need. But actually, it turns out that in order to report it well, you need to understand so many different things. You need to understand. <laughs> And about quality of research. You really need to look at the Dutch research. You need to understand how gender nonconformity is understood in different cultures, right? And we've all been doing that. We've all been doing that together. And I I hope, I, I, I really, really hope to see a pullback from the left-right framing and the good-bad framing. I- yeah. And, and in 2024, if we're going to give any listeners any encouragement for things to do, I really think that um, people are becoming more public and they're willing to activate on this. So, you know, we've been publishing action alerts. We've been encouraging people to be stepping up and being a part. But the other thing about journalism, too, is we do live in a capitalist society. So you do have to put some money um, where your mouth is. And so it is doing things like I, we pay for a subscription to the New York times. I pay for a broad view subscription to you, Lisa. <laughs> I, I pay for a bar pod subscription. I am going to purchase Ben's book. Right. You know, Eliza we, right. Eliza Substack. Like we also, as we grow a movement have to think about too, you know, if this is an issue that you are hugely passionate about and you have, you know, enough money to buy Starbucks twice a week, I feel like I work for NPR. This is their old pitch. I know. Like, like, oh, this is the pledge drive. It's the pledge drive pitch. But but seriously, like I pay, you know, what, $6 a month 
Lisa for Broadview. Like if you want to support journalists, writers, you know, activists in doing this work, like we also have to be willing to help start funding that work. And it can be little, it can be, you know, buy a $30 book one time every three months or whatever. Or it can be if you really do have the money, like start reaching out to some of these organizations too and and start, you know, stepping up and donating and in completing the action alerts and calling the Ohio governor and writing an email like that's part of what's going to help make this change, too. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, writing to your school principal, like just just trying to again, just trying to push it past left, right, good, bad. Mm-hmm. Hey, here is some information. Here's another way to think about it here are some other people who could come speak at your school, which then you can fire from speaking before they speak. Um, uh, Yeah, for years, I've just been trying to diversify the narrative. I thought that's all it would take. I had no idea. I had no idea how hard that was going to be. But I got to say- But real journalism costs money, which is why- I might not love everything that the New York Times puts out, but I sure as hell am going to pay for a subscription because who else is going to actually commit a journalist to digging and doing that costs money. Plus, I live for the spelling bee, so you can pay for the New York Times for spelling bee. I guess I just want to end this by saying the... um, the thing that I learned that I never could have imagined from speaking up was um, that there are amazing people in the rabbit hole. And I just like, I've just met all of you. And I, I just feel like my world actually ended up open, opened up by way of being in a rabbit hole. And I'm so grateful to know all of you. And I'm, and I'm sorry for the, sincerity at the end but um that part has been really really wonderful and so many smart cool people are working on this and and there's a woody guthrie here quote um from a song and i think it goes something along the lines of you know there were two rabbits stuck down that rabbit hole and they were surrounded by barking vicious dogs and the one turned to the other and said that's cool we'll just stay here until we outnumber them (laughs) <laughs> Love that. you're basically saying we have to all have babies with one no but but if we're gonna be down the rabbit hole part of it is we're growing you know growing more and more people who are willing to publicly say something that's yeah. part of it is that it is scary as hell when it's you by yourself but it becomes so much easier when you know that you have other caring people in your corner and that that changes everything. Also, I I have to be reminded of that. I don't know if other people can relate, but like, yes, that's wonderful, Lisa. And I connected with everything you said, and I feel the exact same way. But I'm telling you, like, tomorrow I'll be writing and I'll feel so isolated and alienated again. So you know what I like? It's depressing. And I'll feel like, oh, and all of the voices of the of the people saying, oh, you're bad. And, oh, that's wrong. Oh, you're, what about, it's like, they become very loud. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably staying more connected is probably something that would be good for me because I I need to do it. Yeah. 
All right, we're gonna stay connected in 2024. Thank you all for doing this. I really appreciate it. And um, Happy New Year. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks.